We're going to talk about a, a favorite book of many of ours. Some of you have read this over and over. If you have the little handout, you already know which book I'm talking about, which is Philippians. And we're only going to talk about a portion of the first chapter of Philippians. And Philippians is a great book, particularly um, depending on what situation you find yourself in right now, you may find yourself experiencing incredible joy in your life. And you might also, you might also be finding that, that finding a place of joy is taking a little bit of effort, that it's not so easy as it has been in different seasons and in different eras of your life, that right now it's taking a little bit more to get there. And regardless of whether right now you are in a place of incredible joy or if you are in a, in a place where it's a struggle, I think what Paul wrote to Christians living, uh, living in a town known as Philippi in northern modern-day Greece, I think what Paul wrote to them will be of great encouragement to us, okay? So um, first question for you to just sort of ponder, and I'm just curious, You feel free to respond too. When you're bored, what do you do? What do you do when you're bored? It's okay to answer. It's okay to answer out loud. I can't see the comments on Facebook Live, but if you're, when you're bored, what do you do? So you guys can see each other's comments. I can't read the fine print on the phone, but how about you in the room here? Sleep. Dan, you sleep, okay. Garden. Oh, that's a nice one. That's good. Wait, the project that you put off, you'll tackle it. Now is the time when you're bored. All right, good. There was one other lady back there, I think. Oh, gentlemen. Oh, clean the house. Okay, that's a good one. That's a, how many of you clean when you're bored? Yeah, that's a... How many men? How many of the men in the room clean? All right, we got one hand right there. All right. I'm a big fan of vacuuming, Jack. Nice. Yeah, I like that, Jack. Uh, is this your first time in this class here? Yes. Okay. Well, I, I Jack. My wife and I came here because Jack rode with Dan here, and Jack often goes to Tuesday morning men's Bible study. That's how I know this cast of characters right down here in the front row, but. Um, but uh, Jack lost his sight some years ago after a surgery, two, two years ago, and uh, making the best of a, of a challenge. So memorizing, memorizing the Psalms, that's a good one. That is a good one. What else? What else do you do when you're bored? Read, okay, all right. Anyone, anyone binge your favorite uh, show or anything like that? Yeah, that's... Remember when you had to record things on a VCR if you wanted to binge it, and then you had to find it on that tape because you taped over on that tape? Do you remember that? And then you found out somebody in your household taped over the show you taped? That was not a happy day for them, was it, right? I remember that. Well, you know, it's interesting. We find Paul in prison. Here's a world traveler. Here's a guy who had been over the then kind of known Mediterranean world in ways that most people never were. Just like now, most people live and breathe and live out their existence within about a 30-mile stretch of land. Most people do. I've lived all over the country. I grew up in Michigan, went to school in Chicago. I've, 
I've, I've been in church, worked in churches in Michigan and Kentucky and California, Wisconsin, Oklahoma. So when people ask my children uh, where they grew up, they usually laugh a little bit. And then they, they explain it. And then people go, was your dad in the military or, you know, and then they oftentimes will tell people, no, we were in witness protection program and we kept getting caught. So we had to assume new identities. That's just for jokes. But, but um, most people don't move around. And, and in Paul's era, that was very true. Unless you were in the military, unless you were a merchant sailor, you stayed put. Most people who grew up in Galilee stayed in Galilee and they'd take a trek to Jerusalem. And that was it. They could walk. And here's Paul who grows up north of modern-day Israel in Tarsus, and then he ends up ministering in modern-day Israel, modern-day Jordan, in Assyria, modern-day Turkey, Greece, Italy. He had a dream of getting over to Spain because that was Roman-occupied land. That wasn't frontier. That was actually part of the Roman Empire. If, if he would have gotten there, I think he would have dreamed of going to Great Britain because the southern side of Great Britain was part of the Roman Empire. He would have gone to France. He, he was a guy all about planting the, the name of Christ in communities, and he finds himself arrested in Jerusalem, imprisoned for a couple years in Caesarea, shipbound for Rome, and he's under house arrest, we think, when we find him here penning this letter to to the Christians living in Philippi. And so I asked the question, what do you do when you're bored? Can you imagine how boring a, a Roman imprisonment must have been? Now, the good news is it was probably, as we best understand it, house arrest. Because of some of the references in the book itself, it probably wasn't prison. That's 2 Timothy. He was in and out of prison a few times. But under this particular situation, he is in a house arrest situation chained to a Roman guard. That was the electric tether system of the day. And so he sits down and he, well, he's sitting down. He's got no place to go. What's he going to do? Write some letters. And so he sits down and he writes letters to the friends that he used to minister with about 10 years prior. Ten years have gone by. And this is where the letter starts. If you have a copy of the scriptures, feel free to open it. Philippians 1. We'll just get to verse 3. After some nice greetings, he says, Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Isn't that beautiful? That's kind of, I, I, like I like to sort of drill down on the throwaway verses in the Bible. Now, there are no throwaway verses in the Bible, for the record. I'm not suggesting there are throwaway verses. What I'm saying is, is there's a lot of things that we read in the Bible, like, yeah, get to the point, get to the point. And we zoom past some of these really beautiful little sentences, and we miss out on some glorious nuggets that are offered for us. And this is one of them. Paul says, every time I think of you, Every time I think of you, Lydia, when we met down by the river, because that's where the church in Philippi starts. There's no synagogue. Just go back. It's in Acts 16. And it's this beautiful telling of the story. And then the beauty turns ugly when he ends up beat up and thrown in prison. But the good news is, is he leads the Philippian jailer and his whole family to Christ. And so I got to believe is Paul says, every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. He thinks back to 10 years ago to that riverside where Lydia responded and said, use my home as a base of operations. I, I got to believe he thinks about the time where he was in the, in the Philippian prison and the earthquake 
shakes everything apart. He doesn't escape. He stays put and somehow convinces all the other prisoners to stay put. How he accomplished that, I don't know. But they all stay put, and the Roman guard is so moved by this and realizes there's something supernatural going on that Paul says, let me tell you about Jesus. And the jailer says, that sounds good to me. Tell my wife and kids too. And so I got to believe that as Paul's writing, every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. He's, he's giving thanks for Lydia. He's giving thanks for that jailer. He's giving thanks for that early nucleus of the church that hung together and hung tough. And he gives thanks. Who is it for you that, that when, you, when you think, I give thanks for them? Who is that? Who's, who is it in your life? Uh, not rhetorical. I'd be interested. Your mom. Your mom. I don't care how old a guy gets, right? Mom. That's beautiful. I love it. And my grandmother and my grandmother and your mother. Oh, isn't that sweet? I got a picture of my grandpa. He passed in 1987. I got a picture of my grandpa from the 1930s that hangs on a shelf in my office. And it's, he's, he's, he worked in a factory. He's got his lunchbox. He's posed like this. He's got his lunchbox under his arm. He's got a cigarette right here. He's dressed like he's going to the factory, which meant he was still wearing a sport jacket. And, uh, and it's just one of my favorite pictures. He's probably 22. You know, he's got the rest of his life ahead of him. My, my grandpa, I give thanks to my grandpa. Who else? Who do you give thanks for? I'm going to embarrass my mother-in-law and my mother-in-law. Oh, I love it. That's nice. That is nice. What a blessing. She'll, she'll give me later, later at lunchtime, she'll be like, you shouldn't have said that. But she's glad you said it. That's good. It is. It's, it's those, those close relations, right? I mean, it's that. I, I resonate with that. I, I give thanks for my wife. I give thanks for my children. I give, I, there, there are some people. There are some people in my life I'm not so thankful about, you know? I'm not asking that question, you know? <laughs> That's right. Don't point fingers at anybody during this. But, but Paul, as he's thinking of them, he says, every time I think of you, I give thanks to God. And so the question is, what's he going to write to these folks? What's going to be the content of this letter to them? You know, the Corinthians, he wrote a letter to them, and he's like, okay, you guys are like crazy sexually. We got to address some things. Some things are happening in your church that's not right. And um, also, you, you're, you're thinking of faith all wrong, and your, your church services are turning into a carnival. You know, when Paul writes these very long letters, 1 and 2 Corinthians, there were issues. Or to the Colossians, he's like, Jesus is more than just a good teacher. And he, he, he delves into some of the deep theology of who Christ is. And to the Galatians, he wrote a letter and said, hey, there's people who are trying to suck all the life out of your faith by making you live up to ridiculous legalistic standards. But, but to the Philippians, he writes to them about joy. 14 times the word joy occurs in a four-chapter letter. This epistle, it's not very long. You could sit down and read it probably in 20 minutes, 30 minutes maximum. That's, that's even taking your time going through it. It's a short, short letter. And 14 times joy, 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 joy is in this letter. And he says it in verse 4 right away. He says right after verse 3, he says, When I pray, I make my request for all of you with joy. When I make requests for you, it's not begrudging. It's not, 
a duty. It's not a task. It's joy. I'm glad to do it. When I find out something's happening in your church, I pray for it, and I have a smile on my face. Even, even the hard stuff, I still have a smile on my face because I'm thinking of you. And so um, you've got a little note sheet there. If you want to fill in blanks, feel free. Reality number one is God is always working. God is always working on the willing. God is always working on the willing. That's, that's one of the truisms that we see here in the Philippians verse uh, coming up. God is always working on the will. And here's what he says. Whenever I pray, I make my request for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news. You catch that? You've been my partners. You've been with me. You've been supporting me materially in prayer. Even though we don't even minister side by side, I feel you. You are willing, for you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard of it until now. And I'm certain that God who began a good work in you, within you, will continue his work until it is finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. God is always working on the willing. If you have a willing spirit and say, God, I want to partner with you, he'll work on you. Sometimes when, when nothing's happening in our life, sometimes it's because we put up the barriers and God can't get through. We say, oh yeah, God, I'm willing, but mm, internal attitude, external actions show something different. And what we see here is this, God is at work on the willing. Now let's look at verse six again, because this is a life verse for a lot of Christians. I don't know if you have a life verse uh, a lot of people who have been in the faith a long time will kind of adopt a verse and say, that's mine, I'm going to cling to that one. When I was in college, I was at a Bible college, Moody Bible Institute up in Chicago, and yeah, it was around, I was around so, so much of it, I, you know, kinda, I kind of got a little jo jovial and jocular with it. And so uh, when I, I chose the life verse at Moody, Ecclesiastes 12.12, uh, 12, for the writings of many books is endless, and devotion to them is wearying to the bones. It's in the Bible. And uh, when my friends looked it up, the real spiritual ones were like, that's inappropriate, Bill. I'm like, well, that's why I chose it, okay? Because <laughs> it's college. You're supposed to be, and in a Bible college, that was about as sinful as you got. So, uh, <laughs> you know, at the university, sin is a whole different deal. But at a Bible college, it's kind of, you know, pedantic. Anyhow, so let's go back to the verse. I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue this work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. And it, most of us, when we have heard this verse, have adopted it at a personal level. God, it's like God saying, I, I began a good work in you, Bill, and I'm gonna work on you, Bill. I'm faithful, Bill, to work it until, Bill, you're where I want you to be, until Christ comes back again. And that's how most of us adapt that verse. We make it very personal. And it's not wrong to do that. Don't get me wrong. But that's not actually what Paul says. When I lived in Kentucky, um, I, I learned the plural for guys. See, I'm from Michigan. So plural for you as a group are guys. So I'm like, hey, you guys ready to go? That's, if we were in Michigan, everyone would say yes. But when I got to Kentucky, I realized if this was a group of Kentuckians, I would say, you all, like as in the truck company that you'd like rent a truck from, U-Haul, they would say, you all. I thought it was y'all when I got there, and they're like, not that far south, sorry, we are you all. And I, 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 someone recently told me that the plural for guys in Texas is all y'all, 
Are any of you Texans? Does that sound right? Does that sound right, John? All y'all. So if Paul was writing to a group of Texans, he would say, he would say that I'm certain that God who began a good work in all y'all will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. All y'all. See, when the problem in English is you as a pronoun, it, you got to know the context to know whether or not it's a plural pronoun or a singular pronoun. Sorry, I'm your English teacher for a moment. And when we read you like this verse, we read singular. We, we adopt it, and that's not wrong, but that's not what Paul said. Paul said, all y'all. Or y'all, if that's a more comfortable expression for guys. All right, so, so this is what's fascinating is that what Paul is saying is that God who began a good work in all y'all, in other words, there's, a, there's an inference in this that not only is he going to work with us as a group, but it is that group that's going to do a big piece of that work. That if you, in other words, try to live in spiritual isolation all by yourself, it's darn near impossible. Can it be done? Sure. Should it be done? Not without some drastic reason. So if you're a castaway on a deserted island and all you have is a volleyball named Wilson, then... God can work on you as an individual and make you a very fine Christian all by your lonesome with your volleyball head, Wilson. That's it. That's a reference to Castaway if you haven't seen the movie. The rest of you hadn't seen the movie, like, what on earth are you talking about? It's the movie Castaway. So we need one another. We need to be together. And honestly, the, the pandemic, this has caused a, a bit of a challenge for many of us where we have moved into isolation. Now, now, just to be fair, it's not a bad thing. And, and as uh, many do, they stay home and they, that, that is, that's actually a very wise decision for many. So if you're online right now, I'm not chastening you at all. But we can live alone at home in community with other people even during a pandemic. Thank God between the technology and the other ways of, of staying connected, we can do that. But that aside, let's, let's dream of a brighter 2021. This is where it's important for us to gather together because God who began this good work in you, he has you in mind as a community of people to do this good work within that we will be shaping one another into Christ's likeness. Well, let's move on. Otherwise, we're going to have blanks. We're going to run out of time, and then you'll resent me all day long and wonder about those blanks. Reality number two, God has a vision for us that transcends our own. God has a vision for us that transcends our own. I dream too small. I don't know about you, but my, I've already surpassed all my dreams for life, way past my dreams for life. Some people dream much bigger, so some of you might disagree with that. But the vision that most of us have for our lives is very small. J.B. Phillips wrote a book back in, I think it was the 1950s, Your God is Too Small. And it was an apt title. You don't even have to read the book to know what the premise of the book is, but I highly recommend the book. Great book, still in print. Here's what Paul says. This is verses nine through 11. I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. 
May you always be filled with the, with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. And this is, this is a huge vision. Most of us have a very simple vision. Paul has this huge vision. And so I, I've just identified three characteristics of the vision. There's far more. If you sit down with that verse, which I'd encourage you to do at some point, take these verses we're discussing this morning and journal on them, meditate on them, pray them through and see what you see in them. But characteristic number one is God has this vision that we would be overflowing love for one another, that we'd have overflowing love for one another. Paul says it, I pray that your love will overflow more and more. That, that we would be this fountainhead of love, that it wouldn't run out, that it would never dissipate, that it would just keep on percolating, that more love would come, more love would come. Imagine that. Love has a capacity to grow. Now, most of us are mature enough in this room to know that, you know. I remember the first time the first child was born, and as I said before, Megan is watching. Hi, Megan. When Megan was born, I remember thinking, maybe we should just stop at one, because I don't know if we could love a second kid. And then we had a second kid, and it was this weird thing. We had, as, we had a capacity to grow in our love for her, and then we had a third kid, and our capacity for love grew. I, I've been married now 20, over 24 years to Karen. And, I, you know, if I would have thought back 10, 15 years ago, could my capacity to love her in more mature ways grow, I would have wondered. And the answer is absolutely. I love her more. We talk about it now. And some of you have been married far, far longer, and you're like, oh, please, tell, <laughs> I can tell you stories. The capacity to grow in maturity of love just deepens. So Paul says, I hope that you have this growing capacity to love, not just the people you love, but the people you don't currently love. I hope it overflows. Carrie, you know, and you know what I mean, right? There's people you don't love. And that's, that's really, I think, what Paul's getting at is not just the people you love, because that doesn't take a whole lot of arm twisting. It's the people that kind of irritate us, that we don't like too much, that God was like, I got, I got good news, bad news. You do not have to like them. Good news, bad news. You got to love them, you know? That's, that's the good news, bad news scenario. But characteristic number two, before we run out of time, is increasing wisdom increasing wisdom. If you just asked our culture today, our culture is like love, 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 love wins, love everything, love, 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 love. That's all our culture talks about. And that's only a part of a very important equation. I don't disagree with our culture. Our culture has that one piece right. However, this next piece, they have completely failed. And Paul says, I hope you have increasing wisdom that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. That's wisdom. That's discernment. A discernment, you could say, is applied wisdom. That's, and, and what Paul is telling us here is we can pray for that. You know, um, James says in another letter, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. He gives to generously and all. And so we need to do that. If we don't possess wisdom in our nature, because of sin, we probably have some real problems holding on to wisdom. Pray for wisdom, and Paul prays that they would have wisdom. And then characteristic number three is that they would have maturing character. That they would have maturing character. He says, so that you may live pure and blameless lives. That you would exhibit the righteous character in verse 11. And you put those together, pure, blameless, righteous character. Character matters. 
You know, MLK, the great uh, Martin Luther King Jr., his famous uh, quote from his famous speech, I have a dream. He says, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they are judged by, not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Can you imagine that? I mean, that was just, that was the 1960s. That was a profound speech. Character. And I don't care what your political persuasion is. I don't. I, I, I believe in an equal opportunity offender. But character is on the low, low bullet point list when it comes to, I'm afraid, some of our expectations of our politicians. And again, I'm an equal opportunity. If you, if you hear in that I'm being partisan, then um, you got to ask, oh boy, if my person has bad character. <laughs> so I'm not telling you who I'm talking. I'm talking about the whole lot of them. Like every good American, I dislike them all, right? Isn't that the right stance as an American? You know, the only, Ameri- the only politician is, I'm, a, I love, I'm an amateur historian, the, near as I can tell, the only president and politician that anyone ever really truly liked in his lifetime, for his lifetime, was George Washington. And even the men that worked around him, they didn't like him that much. But everybody else in America is like, that guy should be on the dollar bill for sure, you know? And, uh, but it's a, it is a universalism that we are like, ugh, these people. But character matters. Now, it's easy to point to the people far away. It's harder to look in the mirror. That's part of why we pick on famous people and celebrities and that sort of thing. They're like, oh, they're terrible people. When I am brushing my teeth, looking in the mirror, I'm like, I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty good person. And Paul says, I pray you grow in that character. You're not done yet. I pray that you continue to grow in that. And, and uh, that, that, that sounds great. Up till now, this all feels like, oh, yeah, it's happy. But what do you do, Paul? What do you do when it all falls apart? What do you do in a year like 2020 when things don't work out? When uh, I was hoping Thanksgiving would look a little different, and now it might be a little lonely, or even Christmas, you know? I mean, what do we do then? What do we do in the tough times when, when, when something happens, the, the gears grind and the transmission quits working? What do we do then? And this brings to the third reality for you fill in the blinkers. Reality number three is the light of Christ shines brighter in the darkness. The light of Christ shines brighter in the darkness. Here's what Paul says. And I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here, the whole being arrested and locked up and not being able to move around and the shipwreck and then the Roman imprisonment thing, everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, as your translation might say, Praetorian guard, that just means that they were like the somewhat like the secret service, if you will, of Caesar. They were the Romans' soldiers who were allowed to reside in Rome. Generally, Rome didn't like the legions hanging out in Rome because they might cause mischief in Rome, so they kept the legions out near the front. But the Praetorian guard, they were like dedicated. They took oaths to Caesar. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. 
And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message with fear. And if we understand uh, our history, which we have very good historical documentations outside the scriptures that explain the type of imprisoned situation that Paul was very likely in, the actual prison prison was one thing, and that's probably not what Paul's in. Otherwise, he probably wouldn't be interacting a whole lot with palace guard. Most likely what he's in is a situation of house arrest. And in many of the house arrest situations, they'd take an old veteran who was within a year of retirement or some guy that was tired of swinging the club and swinging the sword and defending his life. It was He was like getting ready to retire and collect the SOS check for the first year, you know? So they would put that guy with someone under house arrest. Now, he's still a big, tough Roman soldier. You know, one of my friends is a retired Army uh, sergeant major, if you know what those guys are. That's an E-9. That's an E-9. That's as high as you can go in the enlisted ranks. It means that Joe knows various ways to kill you and lead men and order this around. When I got to know Joe, Joe was the senior Army advisor to the Michigan National Guard is when I lived up there. And uh, Joe finished up his career in the 2nd Armored Battalion. Joe was a a heck of a guy, is a heck of a guy, tough, tough guy. And um, Joe, uh, 30 years on me, I wouldn't mess with Joe. I wouldn't wouldn't mess around with that guy. That guy could easily handle me. Doesn't matter how old he gets. I'd, so this is a Roman soldier. He's an older guy, but he'd been, he'd been through a, a fight or two. And he's shackled to Paul. Can you imagine what misery that poor guy was in? Shackled to Paul? Can you imagine that? I mean, Paul, I, I just picture Paul because just, he just was tenacious. You couldn't hit him enough to shut him up. You knock him out, he wakes up talking about God again. So at some point, this guy is shackled to Paul, and Paul's like, hey, where are you from? Hey, what was your life in the military like? Did you enjoy the military deal? What was your God that you worshipped in the Did it work out for you? Did he save all the people that were you were praying, or did some of them die in the process of praying to Jupiter or whoever else? And what's it like? I mean, do you really think Caesar's a God? I mean, do you really? I mean, you've been pretty close to this guy. I mean, usually hero worship doesn't happen amongst the people closest to the person. You know, the closer you get to a person, the less luster they have. So what's that all about? And have you ever thought about when you die, what's going to happen? And what if you get on the boat? What if the boatman won't take you down the river Styx? What if you're stuck on the shore? And do you think Jupiter really, or Zeus, whichever one you want to call him, you really think he controls all the gods? He barely can control his own family. They are a mess. What about the dysfunctional gods? How do you keep them all straight? You got to pray to this God for this and this God for this and this God for this. I mean, goodness gracious, I would get confused. How about this? I will trade you all of them for one God who's sovereign over everything. What do you say? And what happened evidently is the palace guard, some of them converted. I wonder if they just converted to shut him up. You know, I could see it, honestly, because there are some people. You ever have a friend sell Amway? You know, yeah, you know what I, you know where I'm going. What do you do? And they're like, hey, I want to do this, I want to do this. You're like, yeah, let's get together. Yeah, give me a call. And then you, when you see their number, you just bump it to voicemail. You just don't, right? And you get it. And they're like, didn't you see my text? I'm like, oh no, I didn't. You know what I'm talking about. Well, I can imagine some of these people like, okay, what's the prayer I do? Yeah, I got to get baptized. All right, let's do this thing. You know, but word spread. Word spread in the palace guard. It's pretty cool. 
And then other people were emboldened. They're like, if Paul can talk about Jesus Christ to a bunch of curmudgeon cranky, old military veterans, and I'm scared to talk to the landlady. Oh, man. I won't talk to the grocer about Christ, and Paul's talking to a guy who has survived many a battle. I'm a wimp. I think if he can do it, I can do it. And so Paul says, you know what? It serves, even in the tough times, there's these glimmering light opportunities where God's name can be lifted up. And I conclude with just where we'll conclude with this today is that, is that uh, verses, uh, let me just read these 15 to 18. It's true that some, this is interesting, Paul says, it's true some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, which kind of blows my mind. I mean, what you got to get a hobby if you're preaching Christ in an unworthy manner. But, but others preach Christ with pure motives, Paul says. They, they preach because they love me, for they know I've been an appointed to defend the good news. Those who do not uh, have pure motives as they preach about Christ, they, they preach with selfish ambition, not sincerity, intending to make my chains more painful to me. Those people are still out there, by the way. Those are the people we read about in USA Today. Those are the, those are the people that accept money from God's people and then they misuse it, squander it in awful ways. Those are the people who, after having some notable ministry, run off with a mistress. I mean, that... that and there's always been people that have preached out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Don't get distracted by them. Don't get drawn off sides in football terms by them. Instead, do this. Instead, Paul says, it doesn't matter. Whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way. So I rejoice, and I will continue to rejoice. And what a great place to land the plane today is that no matter what situation you found yourself in, I bet today your situation is better than Paul's shackled to a guy under house arrest, probably. Maybe not, but I bet it's probably a little bit better. We're probably not going to wonder, what shall I have for lunch today? Will I have a nice place to sleep? We're probably not worried about those things. However, if Paul can say, I rejoice in this, so can we. Amen? All right, let me close in prayer and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to come together as a group online as well, right here in person. And we give you thanks for this opportunity. We thank you for the Apostle Paul. He inspires us 2,000 years later. We are moved by him 2,000 years later. But really we're moved by you because it was through the power of your Holy Spirit moving in him that all this was accomplished, that we have this book called the scriptures, the Bible. We thank you for it. I thank you for each person here and each person watching online and pray you watch over, protect them, give them good health, come alongside them, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. So good to be with you guys. Steve will be back next week.